This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. In 1907, JJ McConnell achieved the commonly held boyhood dream of joining the Royal Irish Constabulary. In those days, the policeman was a pillar of the community. When I left my home for the depot in the Phoenix Park, I carried with me the regards and good wishes of all and sundry. It never occurred to anyone that I was doing anything unpatriotic, not even the old Fenians and land leaguers who still survived, amongst them my father, a veteran of both organisations. Those were carefree, peaceful days in Ireland, and a policeman's life was then a happy one. Duty consisted of maintaining peace at fairs and race meetings, supervising licensed premises, and generally preventing and detecting ordinary crime. Whiskey was popular, cheap and deadly. A man with a shilling in his pocket could quickly get fighting drunk, and if arrested, was honour bound to resist to the limit, so the police had their hands full at every public gathering. This routine was punctuated by duty at elections and political meetings and celebrations. For the orange celebrations on the 12th of July and 12th of August, detachments of RIC were brought to the north from the southern and midland counties, and particularly in the counties Armagh, Tyrone and Derry, their presence often prevented bloodshed. There were Catholic demonstrations too. These too ignited sectarian violence, which was to continue throughout the century. He was sent to Lurgan, County Armagh, to assist local police for the march. On the following evening, an orange mob paraded the streets and inevitably attracted a turbulent following which proceeded to wreck the houses and shops of all Catholics and nationalists, which were of course synonymous terms. Our small force, armed only with batons, was hopelessly outnumbered by hundreds of fanatical rioters inflamed with looted liquor. Time and again we were forced to the barracks, carrying our wounded, but as often returned to the attack and brought prisoners back, not before leaving marks on others by which we could identify and arrest them later on. A local magistrate, Dr Deeney, was called out to read the riot act. He stood under a gas lamp surrounded by RIC with drawn battens, but he had scarcely read two lines when the mob rallied and attacked. The police charged the mob, forgetting the magistrate, and I can still see him charging for his door, which fortunately was nearby and open. These were the first signs of unrest for McConnell, as Ireland stared down the barrel of a long and bloody conflict. From 1912, the policeman's life in Ireland was not a happy one. The formation of the Ulster Volunteers and toleration by the government of their illegal and rebellious activities had a demoralising effect on the force. No serious steps were authorised or taken to prevent gun running in the north, but there was no lack of activity on the part of the military when the Irish National Volunteers brought guns into Houth. True, no acts of violence could be attributed to the Ulster Volunteer Force, but then they were allowed a free hand. The police had instructions to report their activities, but to take no action without further orders. No further orders ever came. It may seem strange to the young people of today that the news of the rebellion was received with horror throughout the country and was condemned in the press and pulpit, when, in the course of a few short weeks, the signatories of the Proclamation of Independence had been executed, there was a sudden revulsion of feeling. The threat of conscription converted the youth of the country to Sinn Féin and made it a power in the land. That this was no empty threat was made clear to the force when every officer in charge of a district and every head constable or sergeant in charge of a station was called upon to furnish a report on the feasibility of enforcing conscription in his area. I was stationed in Ulster at the time and reported that it would be resisted to the limit and by none more strenuously than the loyalists and members of the Ulster Volunteer Force. 
I also expressed the view that it would disrupt the force as a majority of us could not coerce others to go out and fight in Flanders when we were not prepared to go voluntarily ourselves. I understand that most of the reports expressed the same views and that was the last we heard of conscription. On the eve of the War of Independence, public order threatened to break down altogether. An auxiliary force known as the Black and Tans were drafted in England to maintain order by whatever means were necessary. From 1918 onwards, enforcement of the law became daily more difficult and even dangerous. Resignations from the force grew from a trickle to a steady stream, the motives being genuine patriotism, pressure from terrified parents and wives, and sometimes personal fear, as shootings of police were of daily occurrence. Recruitment from the original native source almost came to a standstill. The force as a whole, officers and men, were opposed to the new policy of reprisals. Something had to be done to counteract the leakages and an auxiliary force was recruited from the workless ex-servicemen in Britain. The only essential qualification for these men was military training. Education, character or physique, so requisite in the RIC, being of no importance. Oil and water do not mix and these two bodies never did mix. At that time political and religious feeling was at its highest in the city. Shocking crimes were committed by both loyalists and nationalists. Arming one lawless section of the community to suppress another is not the best way to maintain peace, and responsible RIC authorities in Belfast were opposed to the step. The specials were drawn from the loyalist and orange sections, the traditional enemies of the nationalists. They regarded everyone who differed from them politically or religiously as an enemy and a rebel. Indeed, they were less desirable allies than the Black and Tans or the auxiliaries. McConnell now stationed in Belfast, was exposed to scenes that could just as easily have happened in the 1970s and 80s. This foreshadowing of sectarian strife seemed particularly strong in the north of Ireland, where the largest groups of Protestants and Loyalists were based. There was almost continuous rioting in Belfast from July 1920 up to the date of the truce, 11th of July 1921. The Northern Loyalists were determined to ignore the truce, which they regarded as surrender to the rebels. During the week after the truce, the rioting continued. The shootings, burnings and lootings increased in intensity. On the 14th of July 1921, I was shot in the street by a special constable. This was the third attempt on my life within three days. I was severely wounded by a dum-dum bullet, but made good recovery and was fit to resume duty after eight months. On the 17th of March 1922, I was transferred to Dublin Castle to assist in the disbandment of the force. A few weeks later, the Irregulars occupied the forecourts and a civil war was raging. When I doffed my uniform for the last time on the 18th of July 1922, I was consoled by the knowledge that I had taken no part in that tragedy. JJ McConnell had witnessed the turmoil of warring communities, which was to continue throughout the civil war and would reignite in the troubles along the streets of his old beat. He seemed glad to have taken no active part in these conflicts. For more on the RIC in the Easter Rising and its aftermath, have a listen to our previous podcast and check out www.storiesfrom1916.com. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.